Flood Media acknowledges the Yagara and Turrbal people upon whose land we live. Dispossession of common land is crucial to capitalism, and we share material interests with Indigenous movements for justice and for self-determination. This The situation now is even worse. Flood is not above the poverty line. Okay, great. Um, thanks for joining us for another Floodcast. And this is a very special Olympics cast um, with a very special guest. So Jules Boykoff is a professor of politics and government at Pacific University in Oregon. His research focuses on the politics of the Olympic Games, and he's written four books on the subject, the most recent of which is No Olympians, Inside the Fight Against Capitalist Megasports in Los Angeles, Tokyo and Beyond. He has also written widely on political science, sociology, geography, environmental studies and history for both academic and popular outlets. Jules, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, well, I think I might just start off by asking you, um, how did you become interested in this topic and what is it about the Olympics that strikes you as um, so important? Well, I guess you could say my interest in the Olympics stretches all the way back to my youth. I played high-level soccer here in the United States, where I am, and ascended at one point to play for the U.S. under-23 men's national soccer team, which people here call the Olympic team, and got to play an international competition and got to play all over the United States. And so I was kind of all in on soccer and all in on sport. I have to admit, when I was a young man running around playing for the U.S. national team, I had no idea about any of the machinations that we're probably going to talk about today, whether it was all the spending that was going on, what was happening to local populations. I was totally clueless. I was just running up and down the soccer field and quite enjoying it. It was only later that I started to think critically about the Olympics. I live in Portland, Oregon, and just up the road in Vancouver, Canada. They were hosting the 2010 Winter Olympics. And a lot of activists and poet friends who I have up there were telling me, you got to get up here because there's this incredible suppression of dissent happening. At that time, I was writing quite a lot about the suppression of political dissent in North America. And they assured me that this is a suppression of dissent Orama happening up here in Vancouver. And so I took the train up there and sure enough, they had passed all these rules and regulations that really constricted what you could say about the Olympics in a critical fashion. It was actually breathtaking when I got up there. So I wrote a couple articles about that. And then when I was doing that, I realized this Olympic thing is much deeper than I realized. And the more I dug in, the more I was excited by the possibilities. And so that's pretty much what I've been doing since that time frame, 2009 to the present, focusing specifically, and some might say monomaniacally, on the Olympic Games and the effects that they have on everyday people in the host city. Yeah, great. So I think one of the reasons, obviously, that we wanted to talk to you today um, is because Brisbane is set to host the Olympics in 2032. Um, so we might just go back to the beginning a little bit with that situation. Can you give some background on how Brisbane actually secured this hosting deal? Absolutely. Brisbane secured the hosting deal through very strange conditions. I have to say, typically what would happen, say with Sydney at the 2000 Olympics, is that a number of cities are vying for the games. They put forth their bids. And then seven years before the Olympics, the International Olympic Committee, this nonprofit group, based in Lausanne, Switzerland, decides by voting which one of those cities would be the host city of the Olympics. So that's what happened with Sydney seven years in advance in 1993. 
But what happened was between 2013 and 2018, more than a dozen cities just said no to the Olympics, whether it was through a public referendum where people voted it down or the threat of a public referendum where bidders realized they're probably going to lose, so they pulled their bid, or when somebody got elected on an explicitly anti-Olympics platform, as happened in Rome, and so the bid ended there. And so because the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, was faced with a situation where fewer and fewer cities were keen to host the Olympic Games, they decided to basically refashion the rules whereby anybody could get the Olympics super far in advance so long as everybody in the city, meaning the political and economic elites of the city, could come to an agreement with the International Olympic Committee. And that's what happened with Brisbane. So they got the Olympics, you got the Olympics, 11 years in advance. So I would just stress that it is an unusual situation that that happened. So why did these cities reject the, reject the Olympic bid? That is a great question. And it sort of demands a deep and long answer, but I'll sketch out kind of the basic tenets of why people are more and more saying no to the Olympics. The first reason is overspending. Every single Olympics going back to 1960, for which there is reliable data, has gone over budget. You heard me right. Every single Olympics. Sometimes this can be quite extreme. I mean, the Sochi Olympics in Russia were supposed to cost $12 billion. They ended up costing $51 billion, more than all previous Winter Olympics combined. In Japan, something similar happened with the most recent Tokyo Olympics. They were supposed to cost $7.3 billion. In the end, according to a Japanese government audit, they cost closer to around $30 billion. And so I call this Etch-a-Sketch Economics, where they say during the bid phase that they're only going to cost this much, and then everyone agrees to it, and then they shake up that Etch-a-Sketch and put a brand new number that's inevitably much higher. Another reason why people are saying no is because more people have figured out that the Olympics sort of become a pretext for bolstering the security forces in the city and the country, meaning police forces in the country use the Olympics like their own private cash machine to get all the special weapons and laws that would be very difficult to get during normal political times. And the thing is, they don't go away, these weapons. They don't put them back in the box and return these surveillance cameras to sender. They stay and become part of normal policing in the wake of the games. A third big reason why people are really opposing the Olympics and don't want them in their city is because they tend to increase the amount of gentrification and displacement. So with the improvements, if you will, or revitalization, as some people calls it, in each one of these Olympic cities comes higher rents. It means that people who've been living in these neighborhoods are forced to leave. I've seen this with my own two eyes, whether it was in London when I was living there in the lead up to and during those Olympics, or whether it was in Rio de Janeiro during the 2016 Olympics when I lived there in 2015 and 2016 and saw it with my own two eyes. So this is something that happens in city after Olympic city. Another reason is greenwashing, you know, talking a big green game, making big promises about how hosting the Olympics is going to be a good thing ecologically and then not following through at all. And the examples of this are numerous, and I could give you some later if you want. And the last reason why I think more and more cities are saying no is because it really, the, the Olympics in your city really tends to slice back against democratic processes. And you get all these democratic processes put on hold because of the state of exception that the Olympics bring. And I've just seen this in city after city where the Olympics, um, 
the honchos get to say whatever they want in front of the cameras, but everyday people whose lives might be affected by the Olympics are not afforded that same opportunity. And so this, those are the main reasons, I would say, at this point in the 21st century, why so many people around the world are just not game to host the Olympic Games anymore. Yeah, that's super interesting. And as, as you were talking, I was thinking a lot about um, Naomi Klein's book, um, Shock Doctrine, and how she kind of talks about these moments of exceptionalism, like natural disasters, usually, where, you know, it it basically serves as a smokescreen to push through all of these very exceptional and often very anti-democratic measures um, and new powers for police and military and, you know, mass privatization, which, as you said, like, don't get put back in the box afterwards. Quick, I would just say you're totally onto something. It's super smart, that observation. And I actually wrote a whole book called Celebration Capitalism in the Olympic Games that talks about how disaster capitalism in the way that you're describing from Naomi Klein and celebration capitalism can fit hand in hand and really decimate a city's future. And I laid out how that's happened in numerous Olympic cities over time. Instead of the privatization of everything, though, with the Olympics, it's often that the public pays the price. I mean, the Olympics are a classic escapade in the public paying and the private entities that are involved profiting. So it's not always so much about privatizing things as it is lopping all this cost onto the back of the taxpaying public. Yeah, so that actually leads quite nicely into my next question. And um, I apologize for any background noise. My landlord has like a sixth sense for when I want to record a podcast and he starts uh, mowing the lawn outside. So, but ever since the hosting deal was announced, um, people in Brisbane have all heard many times um, you know, from, from our state government, basically, that the Olympics will be a great economic opportunity for the city. Um, and indeed for the state, that it'll bring all these jobs and investment and wealth to the region. Um, So what would be your response to that argument? Well, first, every single aspiring Olympic city has said almost those same exact words. And you used to be able to get away with that. You used to be able to be a politician standing behind a podium and say exactly what you said. And people would nod along somewhat somnambulistically and you know, think that that was true. Unfortunately, there's a mountain of economic evidence that those are dubious claims in terms of tourism, in terms of economic development. Let me just start with tourism for a second. The evidence is in from scholars that the hosting the Olympics very rarely has a positive tourism effect, especially in places that are already accommodating tourists in many ways. Let me give the example of London, because I saw this also with my own two eyes. But the London 2012 Olympics was similarly pitched as this great chance for tourism in the city. But what happened was the theaters were just totally decimated in London because it turns out sports fans, Olympic sports fans, are a different brand of tourist. They tend to want to stay near the venues that they're going to be watching sports in. And they tend not to go to other things such as theater. And so all the theater goers that would typically come to London stayed away. And of course they did because the prices were much higher that summer for hotels and for accommodation in many different ways. And so they stayed away. It's called actually economists call it the stay away factor. And so the the theaters were just slammed that summer. It was like their worst summer in years because of the Olympics. And so 
the other thing I would just say is if you don't want to take it from this professor from the United States, take it from the European Tour Operators Association. This is a trade group that looked at the economic research on tourism in Olympic cities, and it, advi it advised all of the groups that pay this Tour Operators Association for the best advice. It told them that actually the Olympics are not the great deal that a lot of people say they are, at least not for tourism. And one last example of this, you know, Mitt Romney, I'm coming to you from the United States, Mitt Romney, who helped the 2002 Salt Lake City kind of limp across the finish line after um, the huge scandal that was happening in terms of corruption, vote buying and bribery here. He said very publicly that the Olympics are not a money making opportunity. Now, I might modify that slightly and say that it's not typically a money making opportunity for everyday people. I should say that money is swishing through the Olympic system. It just tends to swish upwards uh, to those who already are doing quite well economically, well-connected political elites, well-connected economic elites. And so that's just what the uh, evidence tells us at this point. Um, we saw some of that with the Commonwealth Games and the Gold Coast as well in 2018, that the effect on local businesses was uh, not all it was supposed to be. Um, and we've seen the state government has released some reports on their projections for the Olympics, which makes some very dodgy assumptions that if you go over and even just uh, read them carefully, you realize there's just billions of dollars in supposed benefits that just come from nowhere and are just totally spurious and made up. Um, but Having said that, one of the things, there's a currently a massive housing crisis in Australia. We've got the cost of housing skyrocketing, we've got rents going up. How do you think the Olympics is likely to impact housing affordability in Brisbane? Yeah, well, first of all, I think looking at those what people call mini megas or mini mega events such as the Commonwealth Games can give a little bit of a glimpse of how these mega events like the Olympics or Football World Cup can play out. The point you raised about these economic impact assessments is also extremely important because inevitably you can find people that are going to put out these economic impact statements that make it sound as if like building this stadium creating these olympics is going to be a boon and lift everybody's economic boat when in reality that that doesn't actually happen and so i think it, those are all things definitely to keep an eye on but there's no question that the Olympics tend to spur gentrification and marginalize those who are already marginalized in terms of their housing status. When I was living in London during the Olympics in 2012, I visited numerous communities in the boroughs surrounding the Olympic zone. There were five host boroughs to the Olympics. And I talked to people who were being forced to move, people who had lived there for generations, but the rent was going through the roof and they were being forced to leave. It's an interesting to point out that Newham, one of those five host boroughs, had the highest rate of homelessness or rough sleeping in the wake of those Olympics as well. And I don't think it's a coincidence. So this is just what happens in city after city. And we're seeing it like, for example, in Los Angeles, just down the West Coast from where I am, where gentrification is happening in the places around these stadiums that are being built, 
they say they're not being built for the Olympics, and that's sort of true because they're being built for National Football League teams, but they're going to be used for the Olympics, and they were touted in Olympics materials. And all around these areas, whether it's Inglewood or other zones by the University of Southern California, you're seeing gentrification take place. And the people that get hurt by the Olympics are those who are already not doing very well with the Olympics. Yeah, so um, you talked about a little bit about greenwashing before, and I want to come back to that point um, as well, because um, one of the big claims about the 2023 Brisbane Olympics um, is that they will be carbon neutral games. And indeed, uh, the IOC has dictated that all games from 2030 onwards need to be climate positive. So this seems like a huge claim. Um, Is it even possible? And what's the plan for this? Well, the general trend of greenwashing, which is to say talking a big green game but not really having follow through, is unfortunately a bit of an Olympic tradition. And when I was living in Rio de Janeiro as a Fulbright Research Fellow, I talked to a lot of people that were really excited about the possibility of this area of the city being cleaned up. It was called Guanabara Bay, which is where a lot of people recreate. It was going to be a place where some of the Olympic sports were going to happen. And Olympic organizers in Rio de Janeiro promised that by the time the Olympics rolled around, 80% of the water that flowed into Guanabara Bay was going to be filtrated and filtered. And unfortunately, that just never happened. It was more like 25, 26% by the time the Olympics arrived. And that's just one example of greenwashing. It's also an example of sort of the false promises that people who boost the Olympics tend to put forth and then not follow through on. And just something to definitely be aware of. And so in terms of um, other examples, like can actually the Olympics be carbon neutral or climate positive, as it were? You know, I come at these with, I think, a, a little bit of healthy skepticism because a lot of what these claims around climate positivity are based on are carbon offsets. And carbon offsets are extremely problematic. They've been exposed as, in many cases, just straight up scams, where they take credit for offsetting carbon emissions from plane travel, for example, but actually don't do anything positive for the climate. I mean, we're just coming out of this recent men's world cup of soccer or football in qatar and they made similar claims there about how it was going to be this uh, carbon neutral event climate positive all these different things but the second you scratch the surface of their claims they tend to uh, not nearly be as convincing and i haven't looked yet at the promises around brisbane and they do have a lot more time you might say to get it right But the general trend, certainly with the Olympics, as well as the World Cup for soccer, is that it's almost impossible to hold one of these events in a carbon neutral way because of all the people who are flying from all around the world and using all that jet fuel and creating all those emissions. And with the offsets being the main mechanism for dealing with them, it's pretty much almost impossible. I mean, I know some scholars like Christopher Gaffney at New York University who will just straight up say it is totally impossible with all these people flying from around the world. And, you know, I'm not disputing him at all. I'm just being a little bit, you know, hedging my bets and maybe something could possibly happen one day. But that's the way that social scientists are really looking at it right now when it comes to these sports mega events and their big green claims. Yeah, I'm glad you you mentioned that because carbon offsetting is a particular bugbear of mine because, like you said, I feel like it's just been exposed over and over again as a complete scam. And it seems like, you know, every six months a new 
report comes out um, proving that carbon offsetting does nothing, but it's still um, the greenwashing choice du jour of so many of these big events. Um, and I recently read as well that the IOC is going to plant an Olympic forest in Africa um, to offset its unavoidable carbon emissions. So that's um, part of the plan at the moment. Uh, and, you know, with offs I mean, we could talk for ages, but there's also issues of like, you know, land grabbing and dispossession that come through planting, you know, these large forests and um, things like that. But I also, on the topic, I guess, of, of land, um, these Olympics will be taking place on, on stolen land and we're likely to see protests similar to those that occurred around the Commonwealth Games that Matt mentioned, um, or the, st the Stolen Wealth Games on the Gold Coast in 2018. So you've written a bit about this in the Canadian context around the Vancouver Olympics of 2010. Uh, could you reflect a bit on how the Olympics intersects with these processes of Indigenous dispossession? Absolutely. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, I think thinking through Indigenous dispossession and the Olympics really raises the bigger picture of the character of opposition to the Olympics. And the the corollary that you mentioned, the comparative possibility with Vancouver, is a good one. Because in Vancouver, in the lead up to those Olympics, there were four host nations that were first nations that were seen as hosts. And they were promised all sorts of things to if they were to sign on as the host. And the one of them was employment going higher for them. And if you look at the records for the Vancouver hiring and who actually worked for the Olympics, you saw an actual decrease in First Nations people with their employment around the Vancouver Olympics. And one of the main slogans, in fact, became no Olympics on stolen native land. I mean, not to get too deep into the quirky history of Canada, but when there were the um, colonial settler colonial groups that were moving across the country and creating treaties with different First Nations and Métis groups, they kind of just ran out of steam in some ways when it was in on the far west coast with British Columbia. And so much of the land there has never been ceded through treaty to the colonizers and so that became this big slogan and you saw a lot of protest from indigenous groups from indigenous peoples and a lot of leadership from indigenous peoples around those vancouver olympics and so i'm really interested to learn more about whether that's a possibility in australia it certainly seems structurally like the possibility is ripe yeah and i think um we want to get into talking a bit more about possibilities of resistance um in the maybe the next um, the last half of the interview, but um, I also wanted to ask you, we've talked about some of the, what we might call like the losers of the Olympics, the people who lose out from having the games um, in their city. Who would you say are the winners? Yeah, uh, I'm glad you asked because there are winners. There's no question about it. I mean, the Olympics are essentially an escapade and trickle up economics where the money comes from the public and it trickles up into the pockets of the well-connected private entities who are involved. So one group I think it's really important to start with who does well from the Olympics is the International Olympic Committee. They're that nonprofit group based in Lausanne, Switzerland that I mentioned before. And for a nonprofit, I have to say it's a tremendously profitable enterprise for them. And they are made up of all sorts of already privileged people. There are usually around 100 members of the International Olympic Committee. And if you think about it, when the International Olympic Committee was started, way back in the 1890s by a plucky French baron named Baron Pierre de Coubertin, 
Basically, what the Baron did was he brought together a bunch of his friends that were counts and dukes and lords and so on and created the International Olympic Committee. And lest we think that all that royalty is just some blast from the past, it's actually remarkable that still around 10% or so of current members of the International Olympic Committee are royalty, whether it's Prince Albert or uh, you know Princess Princess from Liechtenstein. I might point out as a side note, you know, the International Olympic Committee only started allowing women inside of their organization in 1981. Yes, you heard me right, 1981. So this should not be confused with some sort of proto-feminist organization. And so that's a place to start. If you're a member of the International Olympic Committee and you show up at the Olympics and you're just a regular member, you can get $450 a day just in per diem. That's not even including the five-star hotels, the fine dining that you get, all gratis. You can also get $5,000 or more now of administrative assistance if you're a member of the International Olympic Committee. Now, if you're a special member on the executive board, you can get $900 a day in per diem. In other words, you could be sitting in the fifth row of the dressage competition, snoring your, your life away and make $900 a day. You might make more than the person actually out there competing in dressage and winning a medal. And so it's just a lot of the, the money tends to flow to the International Olympic Committee. Now, if they were with us right now, they would say to us, oh, well, we give out 90% of that money and we only keep 10% for ourselves. And, you know, that, that may well be true, but that's a lot of money still for themselves. So I think they're a good place to start. A second group that makes a lot of money from the Olympics are the broadcasters, the television broadcasters. So because I'm coming to you from the United States, I'll highlight NBC, which has paid billions upon billions for the right to host the Olympics on the television waves. And they have a lot at stake for things to go right. In fact, a huge percentage, more than 60% of International Olympic Committee income comes from these international television broadcasters. And they're not like altruists or something. I mean, these are capitalist businesses. NBC's not doing this just for fun. They're doing this to make money. And how do they do that? Well, part of it is the sponsors and the people that buy commercials during the Olympics. But Olympic sponsors are also a big part of it. They have a small elite group of, of sponsors that are sometimes called worldwide partners. And they fork over millions upon millions in order to get a front row seat at the Olympic Games where they can entertain their clients, where they can look important, and where they can drive in these fancy special driving lanes that are only for the Olympics. So, I mean, those are some of the groups that tend to benefit. I should point out, one of the groups that typically does not benefit from the Olympics are athletes. There was a really interesting and I think important study done by Toronto Metropolitan University alongside this really interesting group called Global Athlete that compared the amount of revenues that flowed into the pockets of Olympians compared to other sports like the National Football League, the National Hockey League, National Basketball Association, the English Premier League. I know it's very US-centric, but what they found was in those other professional leagues, the athletes got between 45 and 60% of the revenues. What do you think it was for Olympians in comparison? Uh, not that much at all. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was 4%, it was 4.1%. 
okay and if you talk about direct revenues it's 0.5 percent so that is a huge gap 45 to 60 percent in these other professional leagues versus around 0.5% of direct revenues flowing into Olympic athletes' pockets. And you know, this has really sparked a lot of movement inside of athlete circles. And we're seeing athletes more and more get mobilized usually by individual sports so you have like a sort of swimmers union that's developed you've got a union of track and field athletes that is gaining more traction and then you have this other group that i mentioned that i think is really an interesting one for your listeners to keep an eye out for they're called global athlete and they bring in athletes from all around the world and they follow issues around athlete safety not just you know the money that they get although that's really important as well but also athlete safety in terms of abuse we your listeners will certainly know about the horrific abuse stories that surrounds a lot of these olympic athletes and they're also following what's happening right now very carefully with ukraine and russia and they're trying to boost the ukrainian athletes voice in this situation where it looks like you're going to see russian and belarusian athletes participating at the paris olympics in 2024. One of the advantages of having the Olympics, knowing about the Olympics uh, so far ahead of time for us is that we can start thinking now about what we're going to do about it and how we're going to fight back against it. Um, And part of that is we've actually got the opportunity to build connections with other anti-Olympics movements across the world. We've got Paris coming up in 2024. We've got the LA Olympics coming up in 2028, and there's a lot in your book, uh, No Olympics, about how, especially in Los Angeles, the socialists on Los Angeles are organizing to try and resist it and try to undermine it, or even ideally, you'd hope to be able to stop it. Um, But we've got this incredible opportunity now to actually um, organize not just on an individual city by city basis, but actually start working together and learning from each other on this global scale. So could you perhaps tell us a little bit more to start with about what they're doing in uh, like Paris and in LA now uh, in preparation for the Olympics in those cities? Absolutely. So for starters, back in the old days, by which I mean maybe like 15 years ago, what would happen was the Olympics would roll through a city like a juggernaut, maybe like it did in Sydney. And you'd have activists working on these different issues, whether it was policing or whether it was uh, gentrification issues or maybe environmental issues. And they realized that because the Olympics are such a huge juggernaut, they're going to roll over the toes of their the issues that they cherish. And so you'd see back in the olden days, all these activists kind of come together for this brief moment. And it was sort of a, a moment in time where all these movements would come together. And what activists from Los Angeles, Paris, and elsewhere are trying to do now is instead of having a moment of movements like you saw in Sydney or elsewhere, you have a movement of movements. And what I mean by that is the movement then will transcend the individual Olympics and will be knowledge sharing, we'll be talking about tactics, we'll get together in physical space when possible to share ideas and talk about what worked and what didn't work that will also kind of back activists when they do an action and they'll amplify it on the global social media and so we're seeing this more and more and the first time this really came together was in 2019 july in tokyo when activists there organized what i think is really the first ever transnational anti-olympics summit 
and it involves a big contingent from Los Angeles, like you mentioned, but also from places like Paris, potential cities that were thinking about the Olympics, like Jakarta, Indonesia, somebody came from there, as well as uh, Pyeongchang in South Korea and Seoul in South Korea, and also um, Nagano in Japan, but many other cities as well. And they came together and they engaged in information sharing. They had a huge march uh, through the Shinjuku district of Tokyo that garnered media attention and, and a lot of eyeballs because it's a, it's a high shopping district. And then they did their second transnational anti-Olympic summit in the summer of 2022 in Paris, uh, where again, there was people sharing information and thinking about how to team up to fight against um, this Goliath. And it really is a David versus Goliath situation here. I don't wanna overstate the power of these organizations. They're often ragtag grassroots groups that are totally uh, lacking the kind of funds that groups like the International Olympic Committee have. But because of all those issues that we talked about before, from overspending to militarization of public space to gentrification to the democracy deficit to greenwashing, the Olympics tend to generate activism because those are areas that people are already fighting on. So it'll be interesting to see if folks from Brisbane can get laced in with some of these other activists from places like Los Angeles and uh, from Paris. Yeah. Um... That's really helpful to us to understand it now. What are they... Can you talk a little bit about Los Angeles? Like, you... Because you, you wrote quite a lot about this in your book, right? Um, and there's all these... What are some of the strategies that activists in LA are putting into place now and that they're going to be thinking about over the next five years? Absolutely. So with Los Angeles, it's a really interesting case in the sense that the anti-Olympics group there, which is called No Olympics LA. And if you're interested, I, I strongly recommend following them on social media. They're really active on social media. They're called No Olympics LA. And they emerged out of this group called the Democratic Socialists of America. And the chapter in Los Angeles had a, a particular committee that was working on housing and homelessness. As you may know, homelessness is a serious problem in the city of Los Angeles. And the mayor of Los Angeles, when the bid was happening, a guy by the name of Eric Garcetti, said on late night television here in the United States that if Los Angeles were to get the Olympics, they would use the opportunity to get rid of homelessness by the time the Olympics rolled around. Well, unfortunately, homelessness by the numbers has even just gotten worse since he said that. And second, he's long gone now. His term ended and now he's um, an ambassador to India for the Joe Biden administration, which points to a different sort of problem with democracy that a lot of the people that bring the games in are long gone by the time they arrive. But activists in Los Angeles emerged out of that context, but they also have something that maybe a lot of different activist groups might not have. And that is kind of high powered supporters and very skilled supporters inside of Hollywood. So their filmmaking skills are just off the charts. I mean, the filmmaking team from No Olympics LA has tons of experience in the film world. I mean, they've put out, you know, one of the people that's a bigwig inside of their film crew put out their own film on Netflix at one point it was carried. So like these are people that really know what they're doing. In other words, they're able to create super effective propaganda. The other thing that they've done in Los Angeles is they've actually created their own polling. Unfortunately and sadly, a lot of cities that host the Olympics don't put forth the time and energy to do regular polling about what people think about it. 
And as a result, it makes it really easy for power brokers and elected officials in that city to say, everybody's behind the Olympics. Everyone loves this thing. So what happened was in Los Angeles, there really wasn't an organization that was doing much polling. And so because some people inside of No Olympics LA had experience in that area, they designed a survey and they did their own kind of research. And their polls found very different results than the ones that were done prior to the Olympic bid in Los Angeles. And so, you know, those are some of the things that they've done, but they're continuing to fight against the Olympics. They're running into something that maybe is going to happen or is happening in Brisbane as well, because like Brisbane, Los Angeles was allocated the Olympics 11 years before they're going to stage the Olympics. And while on one hand, that kind of gives you a chance to get people organized and informed and really roll out a robust political education kind of process. On the other hand, the event seems so far in the future that it's hard to get people overly excited about it because it just seems like this distant thing. I mean, if you think back 11 years from now, you're looking at, you know, 2012. That feels like a long time ago. I mean, Barack Obama was, you know, still in office, if you will. So, I mean, it, it's there's kind of a two-sided coin to getting that early bid like Brisbane or Los Angeles got. But... I do think Los Angeles is definitely worth studying. I mean, that's why I spent the time to write a whole book about their efforts, um, especially if you're from Brisbane and you're kind of trying to figure out what other cities have done in the last couple of years. And I would just last say is that No Olympics LA, I mean, it's not just that they're, they're slowing down. They're still active today and they're putting together events. They're very active on social media and they're trying to raise up some of the downsides of the Olympics, like the ones we've been talking about today. Correct. So... Uh, I think this might be a final question, but the anti-Olympic sentiment in LA, a lot of the people driving that are the Democratic Socialists of America, right? And it's not just, we don't want the Olympics, it's tied into housing, it's tied into homelessness, it's tied into um, there's climate change and indigenous rights and all this stuff. I'm interested now, in, okay, how do you see the relationship between anti-Olympics activism and some kind of broader socialist project? Like, do you see this as, how do you see this working as a component of a, a larger socialist political agenda? Wow, that's a really interesting question. I think in the early days of No Olympics LA, this was a great hope for the Democratic Socialists of America. It was getting the DSA, as it's called here, a lot of traction in public because people do care about the Olympics. I mean, that's one thing that's really interesting. You know, if you write about the militarization of public space just in general, you might get some people that are interested, but if it's linked to the Olympics, you'll all of a sudden have all these sports fans and others that maybe even consider themselves apolitical that are all of a sudden getting dragged in to think about politics in a deeper way because of the Olympics. And in Los Angeles, that's definitely what they've been trying to do. And they're not alone. I mean, in Hamburg, that was a, one of those cities that I mentioned before between 2013 and 18 that said no to the Olympics through a referendum. Uh, they had a strong socialist contingent to their fight back. And so in a way, savvy socialist organizers who are trying to build a larger socialist or green project 
can sort of use the Olympics to their advantage, fight against it, give way of getting new recruits. I mean, that certainly happened with um, No Olympics LA. People joined No Olympics LA, and then some of them eventually became members of the, the of DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. And so it does seem to me that if you want to build a, a larger socialist project, you would do well to look right in the face, right in the teeth, of the sports industrial complex and figure out ways that what's happening in those spaces, whether it's football, soccer, basketball, or the Olympics, uh, what's happening in those spaces can actually been, be translated into arguments in the public sphere about why a, a socialist approach would be preferable to sort of the hyper-capitalist, neoliberal approach that is so predominant today. That's a really great uh, note to leave it on. So I want to thank you, Jules, again, so much for coming on the show. And that was a super rich and fascinating conversation that um, to me is I think a great primer for anyone who's sort of been floating around the Brisbane left or you know just Brisbane in general hearing a lot of um, anti-Olympic sentiment but not quite knowing you know what the arguments are or what to really connect it with um, I think you laid that out really well um, so once again uh, Jules mo Jules's most recent book is No Olympians Inside the Fight Against Capitalist Megasports in Los Angeles Tokyo and Beyond uh, which we highly recommend. Um, and if listeners want to follow more of your work, Jules, um, what would you suggest? Sure. Well, I have a website. This just my name, julesboykoff.org. And I'm also on Twitter a little bit. So my name on Twitter is just at Jules Boykoff. But I want to just say thank you for the opportunity. It was a real pleasure to speak with you. And uh, let's stay in touch as this all unfolds. Definitely. Okay, great. Thanks again. <laughs> Bye.